On this episode, we discuss Death on the Nile. Uh-oh, guys, I think I watched the wrong movie. I watched Death on the Neil. Did your movie have a guy named Neil in it? Mm-hmm. <gasps> oh! <laughs> oh, Nelly. Okay. Oh, doctor. This is Charlene, uh, Stuart's, hus- Stuart's husband. Take two. <laughs> hi, th- hi, this is Charlene Wellington, and I just wanted to make a statement on behalf of the Flop House regarding the recent Supreme Court decision um, about Roe v. Wade. Um, and if you are shook, we are also shook. And I just wanted to mention that we... Don't quite know the way forward, but there is one, and we're all here together. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Flophouse. I am Dan McCoy. Hey, it's me, Stuart Wellington, recording live from Detroit, Michigan. <laughs> and it's me, Elliot Kalen, recording live from Los Angeles, California, but that's not a, like a new thing. It's not new. Well, my, what, my thing's tell, different. Telltale. That's yeah. true. Yeah. What you do in Detroit, Stu? I am uh, I'm here in Michigan. My parents celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. That's a big deal, guys. Um, uh, I'm sorry. Are you expecting an applause break? I, I can. Uh, I was expecting want. an applause break. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So well, sorry. Alex just looped that in. Throw in the <laughs> an applause break. Uh, but so they, my cousin who owns a little bit of lakefront property on Lake Huron hosted a family get together, and I got to see a lot of my family who I have not gotten to see in years. Uh, and I got to ride a fucking jet ski, and let me tell you, I used to think people on Whoa. jet skis were assholes. Changed my mind. They are they are thinking the right way. They are living life <laughs> to its fullest. Of course, it's also possible that you're an asshole now, and that's why. Yeah. That's why you oh don't my see god. You made the shift. Oh no! Do I have to look at myself in the mirror if I become an asshole? <laughs> That's <laughs> fine. I mean, just check check your butt in the mirror and see. Uh, but you know, mm-hmm. uh, so <laughs> just like in the movie, just like just like in the color Michael purple, just song, take yeah. a, just take a mirror and just check your undercarriage and see what you find down there because it oh. might surprise you. Yep. Yeah. So uh, what do we do here on this podcast? We talk oh, about oh. Topeka, Kansas, and yeah. movies. <laughs> yeah, and well, this movies. is. Let me say this is a <laughs> this is a podcast where we talk about a, a critical or a commercial flop. Uh, that usually of recent provenance. This uh, this month has been kind of more or less the flop house and more the mixed review house. I would say that old and this film, Death on the Nile, kind of reviews were a wide range. Uh, you know what? People you really could've... liked them. I don't want to. I don't want to jump ahead, but yeah. you could technically call this movie old because it takes place in the past. <laughs> Uh, I mean, no. I, I mean, you can call the so. movie old. So, you technically Dan, I guess, call any movie old for any reason I guess, you want. <laughs> Dan, what you're saying is uh, that the last the last couple episodes haven't reached our full remit of bad movies, and we haven't said much about Topeka, Kansas at the yeah. time. So if you're a flop house listener through and you're disappointed... We're going through a midlife that, crisis. <laughs> yeah, and you're disappointed that our movies lately have not been full-fledged flops, well, maybe come join us August 7th. 
August oh, 7th, yeah. we're going to be at the Bell House in Brooklyn in New York. We're going to be talking Morbius. That's right. The movie America loves to hate in the form of memes. Uh, it's going to be August 7th. That's a Sunday. Doors, 630. Show, 730 at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Go to thebellhouseny.com, I believe is the uh, – let me double say. Yeah, thebellhouseny.com for tickets. That's the Flophouse Live, our first live show in two years. Yeah. And you can see it if you come on down to the Bell House, our favorite venue over in Brooklyn, New York. And, you guys, and you'll get to hear us say stuff like starring Jared Leto Atreides and other kinds of great jokes like that. <laughs> Don't give them a waste to. Don't give them away. Oh, no, I'm already gassed out. I'm going to need but, to have someone yeah. else in. But well, as with all live shows, we will have all new PowerPoint presentations beforehand that will not be with the episode when we eventually release it. So come on down or you'll never see them. You just won't know what we what we made jokes about. Hopefully yeah. they'll be of a higher caliber than that Leto, <laughs> Jared Leto Atreides uh, one. Uh, thanks for addressing that uh, our, mis- our mission creep, Elliot, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. uh, with the live show. Stuart, uh, have you checked your levels since you started holding the microphone like a cool dude? Is it yeah, still yeah, okay? Yeah. Oh, I mean, they're right I mean, up they're next- cert- it's a little hot. A little hot. I mean, the, the, the microphone is <laughs> almost in your mouth. Okay. Yeah, so... <laughs> Um, uh, I figured. I figure uh, our cool editor will just fix it all in post. Yeah, right? that's, that's me this time. That's me this time. Oh, that's what shit. I'm so worried about. Oh no! Normally, oh Alex, no! Alex is on vacation. We've, so yeah. we've never, policing. We've ne- we're not known for having audio issues, right? So. No, never. Your big tech breaks. That never happens. Oh wait, hold on. Last yeah. week. <laughs> and this week, we <laughs> to pull back the curtain. We've had two Zoom mishaps already. Hopefully, I think we've fixed it. But they're called anyway. zishaps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, thanks, Zima guy. Anyway, death on the Nile. <laughs> <laughs> what, do you ever wonder what the Zima guy's up to these days? He's, he's Zima probably guy. he's probably living in a very real town we passed up here in Michigan, Zilwaukee. Not, I'm not making that up. I saw it. <laughs> you think he's just like, huh? Good morning, everybody. I'm going to go check the Zale. <laughs> and, and his wife is like, oh, God. Divor- divorce me. But, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, take back this ring to Zales. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, but well, I got Dr. it at Zarin. Zizmore and <laughs> get that mole checked out. Every Ziz begins with Zay. Now, uh, now, uh, Zima guy, if you're out there, please write into the Flophouse. Yeah. Let us know how you're Say doing. Hi. You're still putting Z's in front of your words. <laughs> and for the younger people out there, write in if you don't know what Zima is, and we'll explain <laughs> it to you. <laughs> we'll do our I think, best. I think Charlene worked at a place, years ago, Charlene worked at a place that had Zima on draft or on mm. tap. So Wow. What a heady time we lived in. <laughs> yeah, yep. <laughs> yeah, what a world. Truly a Zolden age that we've, that we've long since passed. For some reason, I don't know why, Zima is entwined in my mind. I need somebody to hit Elliot on the side of the head to, <laughs> to fix the record. <laughs> the side of the Z, that uh, it's entwined in my mind with Boku, the like fruit juice that Richard Lewis did ads for, and I don't know why. Why are those two things in, uh, combined? I don't, I don't is it just this at you don't all. remember that one? It was, you were probably I guess both on a video, uh, VHS tape or a ZHS tape um, that you had. <laughs> Thank you. Of like old Ninja Turtles cartoons that you kept watching all the time or something. Yeah, because they, they advertised a lot of Zima and Boku, grown-up drinks were advertised during Ninja Turtles quite a bit, sure. I understand well, that a lot, of pe- a lot of people like him now based on, uh, uh, what do you call it, the, the, the show uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Uh-huh. But, uh, Zerb Your Enthusiasm, yeah. What's his face? The guy you're talking about, who, Richard Lewis. Yeah, yeah I yeah. never. I I lived through peak Richard Lewis, and I never understood it. I'm like, what? There's something here that I'm missing. People are telling me this man is a comedian. I'm not sure what's happening. <laughs> wow. Wow. I just he, I, I mean, just a might, treasure. 
Are Take you? That, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't know I got an invitation to the roast of Richard Lewis. Just I'm now. sorry. Do you feel differently about Richard Lewis? Do you put on a comedy special about Richard Lewis and you're like, ha, 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 hilarious? Yeah. <laughs> not yeah. particularly, but yeah. still. Uh-huh. Yeah, I have to make sure that my knees. I'm not are scared. Come at me, laughing. Richard Lewis. <laughs> yeah, I have to wear a corset to keep my sides from splitting too much when I yeah. listen. But hey, but so this is not just a podcast where we rag on Richard Lewis for some reason. <laughs> We talked about a movie today. I just didn't understand what his deal was. I'll tell you when I laughed at Richard Lewis. I feel like his comedy routine is him (laughs) bald-facedly explaining his deal. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I guess I just didn't find it funny. I found It's not exactly like an Emo Phillips type riddle that you have to unlock. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, no, I find Emo Phillips hilarious. That's how they're different. Yeah, because Emo Phillips is a master joke writer. He's hilarious, yeah. Richard Lewis made me laugh once when he, in in Robin Hood, Men in Tights, when he says, I have a mole? Yeah, that, yeah. That made I me also laugh. like when uh, when Tracy Ullman says uh, she changed her name to Latrine. It used to be Shit House. He goes, "That's a good change, a very good change." <laughs> yeah. Okay, Richard Lewis, I, uh, you know what? I'm back. Yeah, yeah. pretty funny in when he's in, when he's in the hands of of, of second tier Mel Brooks, you yeah. like him. So, okay, yeah. everybody, let's talk about this movie today. It's called Death on the Nile. Uh, I am so curious to talk to you guys about whether you found this movie as blindingly obvious in its mystery <laughs> oh, as I did. Oh, mm-hmm. oh, I, I certainly did. Audrey early on was like, so what do you think happened? And I said, basically exactly what ha- happened. I mean, this yeah. is before the two other murders that are just to cover up the initial murder. But anyway. This is, this is I, 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 it's a very dour mystery. It's not a fun mystery. The and the and a part of this is they didn't know when they cast Army Hammer that he would become synonymous in the mind with in, in the minds of America with drinking human blood. Mm. But still, there's and, a, and devouring people's bodies. He's he, it was a yeah. cannibal thing, right? Yeah. Oh, it is. It's thing, actually a vampiric thing. It's kind of shocking how many of the people cast in this movie have taken a turn in public opinion. Yes, because Letitia Wright uh, was an anti-vaxer, uh-huh. uh, and Russell Brand is a asshole <laughs> is himself i mean but they knew that going in that's yeah. not a new thing that's that, that when when russell brand is one of the more restrained performances in the film too it's an interesting yeah. movie that you're watching not that they're not that they're particularly over the top performances but let's get into it death on the nile the movie that it dares you not to guess the mystery ahead of time <laughs> the movie that is it's like it's if if as we've said i think before in the podcast uh we certainly said it in private life that uh with mystery tv shows they want the audience to know ahead of time because audiences like to feel smart to set up a movie about a detective who is famous for noticing things that nobody else notices, and yet he doesn't notice that Army Hammer is a creep until two I mean, hours into the film. I'm sure we'll get into it later, but I'm going to make an <laughs> argument for Hercule Poirot being a terrible detective in this movie. <laughs> in this, he's horrible. So he's such, this, he's, a te- he's so sorry. This is this still. is the. I was just going to say this is the this is the second one of these Kenneth Branagh Hercule mm-hmm. Poirot yes. movies, and I've not seen the first. The first one is about, I would say, on par with this. They're they're okay. very similar in style, tone, and quality. His mustache is a little more walrus-like in that one, whereas this mustache looks like he just taped another mustache over an existing mustache. It, <laughs> so it has does look like that. It looks like mustache. he, at some point, might remove <laughs> one mustache and throw it like a batarang. Yeah. Yes. It, it's very strange. And they go to, a, and as as with all reboots, that you've got to explain the mustache, which <laughs> I... 
I gotta say, the opening sequence, which is a flashback, is the first time I've ever seen a fucking origin story for a fucking mustache. That is <laughs> wild. That is like, I mean, I don't. Was it was it Last Crusade? Was the movie that really hammered home the idea that they're like, we're thrown in flashbacks. We're gonna explain the existence of every yeah. element of this character's personality. You need to explain his hat, his whip, why he doesn't like snakes. All but at least stuff. there, yeah. that why place, it belongs like a in a museum. Because it's yeah. like, oh, all this stuff happened in rapid succession on one day, and that's yeah, kind of why he's called funny. Indiana. Yeah, uh, and also, and also that hadn't we hadn't seen that so much in movies before. Exactly. So it was like it was kind of enjoyable. It was so, so stupid. So if that covered every element of that character's personality, I guess the most important part of Hercule Poirot's personality is his mustache. Well, certainly yes. to Kenneth Branagh, because I will tell you. The rest of Hercule Poirot as shown in this film is not the Poirot I am familiar with. Well, so tell me about that, because I'm really only familiar with the Poirot Albert Finney plays in the original movie of Murder on the Orient Express, which I have to say, that character is so weird and so bizarre yes. in the way that he does everything. And and just he is, you, you get the impression that he is a very off-putting man and that people only have him around to solve mysteries, whereas Hercule Poirot here is a very... He's just a he's just a you know respectable, sophisticated I, gentleman. I think you know? that both of the the big movie Poirots, you've got Albert Finney in Murder on the Orient Express, and you've got Peter Ustinov in the the, the, the original the other Death on the Nile and Evil yeah. Under the Sun. Both of those fa- focus on Poirot's fastidiousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, either like Finney is a little more on the serious end, and and Ustinov plays it all for laughs. Um, which is part of the character, but you know, like as you know, David Suchet is the one that everyone points to as, as sort of being the definitive. Is he the one who did him on TV? Yes, I've seen just, pictures of him. Just okay. as Jeremy Brett is often pointed to as the definitive Sherlock Holmes, uh, and and Tony Shalhoub is the definitive Monk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, uh-huh. despite despite uh, Name of the Rose featuring many different monks, none of them hold <laughs> candles. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Thelonious. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, no, but. So, like, the fastidiousness, I guess, is is something else that um, is is done in, in Branagh's version. Although, here, Branagh interprets it sort of as full OCD. Like, there's a scene early on where he must have an even number of desserts. Um, yeah. Uh, but Poirot in the, you know, you know, in the stories is more of a sort of a kindly listener. Uh, and, you know, like, he's just a gentleman... Who's like a little too? He dresses a little too like Natalie, but like out of fashion a bit. And he dresses you know, he like a, Natalie Walker. Yeah. Oh, has, wow. <laughs> yeah, very fashionable. Like cabaret actually. style. Um, no, but he's like a bit of a fancy pants, but like maybe a little out of date. But he's a nice man who people you know open up to, and that's part of his thing. Oh, I see. And. He, as opposed to going to each person and accusing them of being a murderer. Well, that's what I wanted to say. Like this, yeah. this version of Poirot, like usually mm-hmm. in a in a in a story like this, you have like the de- like the police detective, the dumb police detectives, and like Holmes or Poirot or what, like who just want to accuse people because they don't really care; they just want to make a collar. And the main detective is the one who actually cares about the truth. And here, like, it's like, well, we don't have those characters, so let's just have Hercule Poirot go and accuse everyone in turn <laughs> as if he's like, well, you had a good explanation. Now on to the next person I'm going to accuse. <laughs> just 
he's like barreling around the place like a like a rhino. <laughs> like I don't. He's understand. incredibly unsophisticated in the way that he gets information from people, and literally dead bodies have to like fall in front of him almost, or like <laughs> you know evidence needs to be dredged up out of the sea. By the, the end of this thing. Denial. Five people have died. I do not think this is a successful case in the annals it's of not Paul a Rowe. Yeah, yeah, case, case closed. For yeah. yeah. Now, if it's I... not going on his on his best of list. So, yeah, yeah. When I the don't... AV Club does top ten best Hercule Poirot cases, this is <laughs> not, not as most effective. Uh, the so if I if I don't uh, maybe this is better at the end of the episode, but if I was going to like take a dive into Hercule Poirot stories, where should I start, Dan? Stories like the book. I mean, like everyone or movies or yeah, TV I, shows. Watch the watch a, an episode or two of the David Suchet TV show. I mean, like they look. It's going to be that kind of a little too slow, cozy feeling British production. But David Suchet is a great actor, so it's fun to watch him do okay. his version of the of the character. I mean, like look. I don't. I don't think that movies have to be Good. accurate to. Oh. The to source the material necessarily, but there has to be a, a reason or an improvement or like if it's something like Batman where we've had like 82 Batman by now, you want to find mm-hmm. a new angle on it. So maybe you, you know, go a little nuttier and with the angle but, could be put Colin Farrell in a penguin <laughs> outfit, <laughs> but we That's haven't had, we haven't had Poirot on the screen since like. In the movies, at least, since like the late 70s, early 80s. So it's like... Uh, and, w- until Murder on the Orient Express, the new one. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I, it's weird to me that this version is so unrecognizable. <laughs> but anyway. Well, let's talk about it. Let's get into the plot of this movie, huh? Because it is it is a movie, like I said, it is daring you to imagine a more complicated mystery <laughs> than actually is brought forward. But we begin. It's October 31st. 1914. That's right. Halloween in the trenches of World War One. The fact that it is Halloween goes unremarked upon. <laughs> you want to see something really scary? <laughs> <laughs> Here's what's really scary. Man's inhumanity to man. Thanks, Kenneth Branagh. Anyway, uh, they're in Belgium, and there's all these soldiers in muddy trenches and ravens, and this part's all in black and white, and the French army cap- or maybe it's the Belgian army. Whoever, I don't remember if it was a French or, or Belgian captain. Because uh, is Poirot supposed to be Belgian or French? He's Belgian. Okay, so it's the Belgian army. Uh, they get the order to attack this heavily guarded bridge in three hours. They're gonna, the wind's going to shift, they're going to gas it, and they're going to attack. And they should expect heavy casualties. And Poirot, who's one of the soldiers and does not yet, does not yet have a walrusine mustache, mm. he notices that the birds are flying around in such a way that it shows the wind is going to turn early because the birds always fly this way for the word winners. He goes, if we attack now, then the wind will push our gas forward and hide us. Basically the same plan, but let's do it now instead of in three hours. And yeah. are they going to do it? They do it. And they manage to push the Germans back. It's a successful advance. But then his captain trips a tripwire that blows him up and blows uh, the bridge up. So it was kind and of a waste. Blows and off some it, of Poirot's face. As yeah. we find in the next scene where he's in the hospital, he's visited by his fiance Catherine, who is either English or is just being played with an English accent because everyone in Europe in an American movie, mm. unless you make a point of it, has an English accent. Like, and uh, just as everyone in ancient Rome has an English accent. And yeah. he didn't, he goes, oh, I didn't want you to see me this way. My face has been scarred. It's not that badly scarred. It's scratched up. Oh, you know, oh, oh, big... oh. Elliot, I'm going to go the opposite direction. It's really? pretty gross. His cheek, yeah, when he turns. Yeah, it hasn't healed yet. Yeah, well, he turns his face. His cheek is still open. I'm like, I understand that this is uh, like an army 
like makeshift hospital, but someone should probably stitch that up because it is an yes. open wound. Yeah, they yeah. should have, they should have given him some medical care. And yeah. Then yeah, when he turned over, like, I'm like, is he going to become a fucking Deadpool? What's going yeah. on here? <laughs> and then she's like, oh, you know, you could grow a mustache to cover it. And I'm like, honey, that is not going to get covered by a mustache. I mean, Although it should, magically he, is for the rest of the movie. Although it does in the movie. Well, that's, that's, the thing. that's what I'm saying. Can, it couldn't have been that bad because his mustache does manage to cover yeah, it up. Yeah. And it's not that big a mustache. Except for then at the end, you know, leap to spoiler alert. We do see his unmustachioed face later on at the end of the movie. And... Again, that mustache would not have covered the scars that we see. No, at best, a beard might have gotten some of it. Anyway, uh, now we go to London in 1937. We're in color now. Poirot's a famous detective. He's got a mustache. He's returning from Egypt, which is confusing since he's about to go to Egypt. Uh, But I think that's only because, so at the what I read in the IMDb trivia was at the end of Murder on the Orient Express, someone says, Poirot, there's been a death on the Nile. And... He, I, it's, uh, that sets up the sequel supposedly. Except in this sequel, he bumps into the mystery. He's not mm-hmm. told to go to Egypt for this murder, and so I think they just needed to explain that away that he was just in Egypt for a different mystery, <laughs> and, but he's going to go back for this one, which is uh, dumb. Yeah. Uh, and so he uh, he goes into like a jazz club, and uh, that's where we first meet uh, some of our other characters. Uh, let's go through. And uh, while Hercule Poirot is too busy. Uh, arranging his desserts in a pyramid on his table and, and yep. having one too many for him to be happy. Uh, we meet some of the other characters. We meet uh, uh, Salome Otterborn, who is a renowned jazz singer, and her niece, Leti- uh, Rosalie Otterborn, who de- says that Salome's not going on stage until they get paid, which is how you had that, that at yep. the time, that was how you had to be when you were a black performer. If you didn't get paid before the show, there was a big chance you were just going to get stiffed. So mm. that's, and that's, as far as I know, until the end of her days, that's how Aretha Franklin still operated, was if you wanted to perform, you had to hand her either a cashier's check or a bag full of money. So, and then she would count it before she would go on stage because she'd been cheated so many times in the beginning of her career. And wow. we also meet, uh oh, uh, some. Some uh, s- uh, some sexy dancers, dirty dancing all over the dance floor mm-hmm. once the music starts. <laughs> That's Army Hammer as Simon Doyle and Emma Mackey, Emma Mac or McKee as Jackie De Belfort, and they are engaged and they are might as well be having sex on the floor. It is just super yeah. steamy, especially for 1937. But I guess they didn't invent sex nowadays. They had it back then too. So well, that was yep. Like uh, yeah. So wait, you're talking about the dancing between Emma and him not even what happens then with gal gadot Gadot. gal gadot hasn't shown up yet but she's about to because that's crazy Uh, and we'll talk about it when it comes up sorry so 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 jackie and simon they are they're just all over each other there is a part where even where jackie bends down in front of him and he kind of like thrusts his his pelvis into her butt which was not a dance move in the 30s i'm sorry i mean maybe yeah yeah i want yeah his his tongue rolled out and turned into a little carpet (laughs) and she walked up and down it I mean, I mean the way it's so it's so obvious it's so much over the on, on the nose that his tongue might have as well turned into a phallus and gone ooh boy and then uh-huh. went back into his face you know <laughs> and so uh, Gal Gadot shows up she's Lynette Ridgeway she is a wealthy heiress and she's a friend of Jackie de Belfort's and she introduces them and there is instant uh, instant uh, steam between her yeah. and Simon they, yeah, they look they're at each both other super as attractive. If, yeah, they as, dance. As, as, as if they were the reincarnations of long lost lovers, and da- they dance in a very funny it's choreographed absurd. way. Absurd! Like I like, you know, his old flame is witnessing the new flame and looking sad, and it would be enough for them to like dance close enough in any other movie, I think. But like, they fall just short of like doing the dirty dancing lift. Like he actually does lift her up, and I'm like, 
you just this this new lady you're like dancing like this but they also it's also he's trying to get a job dude yeah Yeah. true because because jackie then asks that uh that Simon can get a job as the caretaker on her new estate that she just inherited. And he's got a, we got another great what mustache. What better the way Army to dance, I guess. And so. there is, he is, when he meets Gal Gadot, he is such sleaze smarm from moment one. From moment yeah. one, you can read all over him that he is a bad dude. He is not a sincere, well-meaning person. And uh-huh. he, it's just like Max von Sydow showing up in Minority Report where you're like, oh, the bad guy just walked into the yeah, room. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, the devil just walked in. Great. Uh-huh. I, think, I wonder yep. if he'll turn out to be a bad guy. Oh, um, your name's Louis Cipher, huh? Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> Take Let my mom. Check. Let me just check. Uh, yeah, there is a there is a ticket here for a D evil. That's your name. <laughs> what does the D stand for? It stands for devil. So your name is Devil Evil. <laughs> yes, but I'm a perfectly nice man, and I should be your friend. Okay. <laughs> and at the end of the movie, I can't believe Devil Evil <laughs> betrayed me. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, but there's a part in that dance where Gal Gadot like turns around and walks forward a couple steps, and he walks forward behind her, and then he puts she puts her hand on his shoulder, so, or vice versa. But it's like a choreographed move. It's not yeah, like yeah. A, it's. It's a silly dance. <laughs> anyway, uh, Poirot is watching them dance, then cut to the Nile six weeks later. We get pyramids up the ass, shot mm-hmm. after shot of the pyramids. And- oh, my Lord. Yeah, it's, it's man, they throw in so many big, like, sweeping digital shots like this. Yes. And well, it's like, who is this for? Let's yes, talk exactly. about the digital shots, because uh, I looked it up. They were going to shoot this in Morocco. It was actually shot in England, and one would okay. think, oh, this is like a COVID thing. This was all shot in 2019, so it wasn't even a, a COVID issue. They no, just they held the movie for a while. Decided yeah. to not have anything real in the movie. It's like, I think that there are like a couple of shots that are peppered in there that some second unit picked up. That, but yeah. Wait, that, general, that shot of a, of a crocodile eating a bird out of the air, like snatching <laughs> a bird out of the air, that was real, yeah, right? Very realistic. <laughs> the, the, I, cop, yeah. the crocodile said, sorry, folks, didn't mean to make <laughs> yeah. us watch that. <laughs> hey, don't worry, don't worry, everybody. We'll get back to the story in just a moment. How are you enjoying the picture? Uh, the, the crocodile, it did, it did hurt the realism. It's a cigar. When the, when the crocodile turned to the audience and said, it's a living, and then went back under the water. But, yeah, and yeah. then Hulk so Hogan was, came out and like, hey, crocodile, stop eating all those birds and let people watch the movie that they paid good money for. Let people enjoy the movie, or the Hulkster's going to go wild on you. The, the, uh, so here's what got to me about these pyramid shots. Every time they go to an Egyptian site, they go to Abu Sindel yeah. and stuff like that, the camera swoops around like drone-type shots, and it looks really fake, but also it's like, Create the create the feeling for me that I am with these characters at the base of these monumental, you know, ruins. Yeah, and shoot it from below with the characters so that I feel like I'm there. When you're swooping over it, I'm like, did I just? Am I watching now like a demo reel for a, for a GoPro? Like, what's going on? Yeah. It, like, it's from no one's point of view. It looks weird. It makes everything look fakey, and it takes these things that even a CGI version of the Sphinx or the pyramids should look impressive next to your characters, and it just kind of minimizes all of them you know yeah i mean there look there's a certain beauty to the fake images but it's like a chintzy beauty like you know i don't know like it's just cheap digital well, the, the whole, art you know i'll tell you the movie it, i'll tell you the movie it felt to me the same way that a movie poster looks to me where everything looks yeah. kind of airbrushed and weird and it almost gets to the point of like a 1980s Playboy centerfold where the women's faces and bodies have been airbrushed to the point where they no longer look like a, a photograph. Yeah. yeah. Well, like I, it, all, uh, it all looks super slick and smooth in a glossy kind of like, un, not in a fun way, not in a like, glossy like fantasy world way, you know? 
But movie poster, I think, is a good uh, is a good correlation because it also like you in a lot of these shots, I have no idea what plane any of the characters are on or if they're yes, anywhere yeah. like. Yeah, just there's the the sense of space doesn't make sense in a lot of times. Yeah, yeah, and I think that really is to the detriment of a thing where part of the excitement is the location is the yep. idea that they're in an exotic location, you know. And as you know, we sit, it's the 21st century and we shouldn't exoticize foreign cultures, but the but Egypt is still a very exciting location, you know. Yeah. Like you can't get over how exciting the pyramids and the Nile and the Sphinx and all that stuff are. So to to make it turn it into movie poster kind of postcard stuff is 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 disappointing. But anyway, Poirot, he's got a duet of pleasures. He's got a table full of sweets and he's got a view of the Sphinx. Does it get any better than that? Unless you get him mixed up and take a bite out of the Sphinx. Maybe that's why it doesn't have a nose. Poirot just bit it off. Well, it turns out it's chocolate, though. Oh, yeah. So it was all chocolate, really. Yeah. Oh, so, it's, chocolate. it's amazing it doesn't melt in that chocolate. hot Egypt, yeah. in that hot Giza sun. But, uh, well, they put marzipan his, on top. His view of the Sphinx is wrecked by a kite, and that's when he noticed. That's only when he notices for the first time that there is a man who has climbed halfway up the pyramids to, up. to fly a kite. It's ridiculous with no gear. You can so do free that. Solo. They just let you, you do, do that. that. There's no uh, nobody else there. I guess. I mean, it was the time when. Uh, I mean, this is the reason now that I think you need to have guards and stuff letting you in. You know, a certain number of people at a time because there oh, was a period. It's true where. Where yeah, because Book would just go and wreck old ruins, and he finds out it's his friend Book, uh, who's kind of like a a rich gadabout. And Dan, is this a character from the other movie? This is a character. I had to go check on this. He he was in. I mean, I didn't have to check that he was in the other movie. On the Poirot he, wiki, he, he's <laughs> regular wiki was surprised, but he's also in. He's in Murder on the Orient Express, the film. He's also in the book Murder on the Orient Express, which is something that this I checked. actor is. <laughs> no, the character of Book. Because I checked it because, like, in so much as uh, Poirot has a Watson figure, he has his friend mm-hmm. Hastings, who is, like, a, sort of a English, like, he's he, I think he was a soldier, but he's also got kind of a Bertie Wooster vibe. He, You know, he's, like, anyway. Kind of a, kind of a, kind of a not, not too bright rich guy? A little bit, yeah. But, you know, a nice, a nice sporting man who uh, backs Poirot up. And... He was not though in the the book of Death on the Nile. They they just transported this character on. They're like, oh, we need more you know consistency between the movies. I guess. So it's kind of like with with the the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean movies where they were like, we got to bring back every character, all the characters you movie. loved, <laughs> like the characters those love. guards, the soldiers. <laughs> They're yeah, in that, all of them now. <laughs> that English territorial governor or whatever. You know, what a weird miscalculation. Hey, you know what people loved about this pirate movie with skeletons in it? All, all these characters that have nothing supernatural or distinctive about them. Bring them all. Do you think, a good good for those actors, you know, that they got. They yeah, got do, you think it was, do you think it was just like, a, like those actors just got a really badass contract signed and they're like, I think that's fuck, our hands are tied. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, so uh, Book and his mom Annette Benning, playing Euphemia, she's a painter. Uh, they are there because they're part of the wedding celebration party for uh, some pe- for uh, some rich people they know, for a cousin of theirs or something. Anyway, or just someone they're friends with. And, and she uh, has an English accent. Yeah, Annette Benning has an English accent. Yes, but she uh, doesn't in real life. No, in no. real life she does not <laughs> have an English. A... Accent. And Kenneth Much Branagh as... has a. French accent. <laughs> well, Belgium. 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 Yeah, but he has, but... in real life, he has an English accent, but in okay. this, he has a Belgian accent. Okay. Okay. Uh, 
Yeah, I was reading about. I mean, I have. Many... I mean, you're gonna have to clarify a couple more accents for me. Okay, we'll we'll get to them. We'll get to them. Uh, but they're part of this wedding party, and Book, being being the kind of rich asshole that he is, invites Perot to come along with them on this trip through Egypt that is not their trip. Like mm. they're they're part of a larger a larger group. Uh, and there's a there's an at this point there's an overhead shot of a pyramid where. I actually had that optical illusion where even though it is pointing out, it looked like it was pointing in, like it was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and that that's what Nyarlathotep wants you to think. Exactly. <laughs> and up, up to that it was up to that point. I had I wrote my notes. Most interesting part of movie so far. So <laughs> when, that that brief inadvertent uh, optical illusion. And the most the second most interesting part comes up soon as we see that French and Saunders, the English sketch duo, have reunited <laughs> for this film. Yeah. But that uh, I was Not waiting since... for. Bob and David show up in the post. <laughs> right, I was yeah, exactly. I was just waiting for Joanna Lumley to show up to complete uh, yeah. to complete uh, Jennifer Saunders's other uh, other friends. But anyway, yeah. uh, so they go to the hotel uh, where we see all sorts of stuff that's set up. A man sends a sneaky telegram, and there's and French and Saunders check in, and one of them is a socialist, and the other is her kind of nursemaid. And a guy is and Russell Brand is repeating an affirmation into a mirror, and there's a French lady who has a fancy jeweled necklace and all sorts of stuff. Anyway, the important part is it's. Simon's wedding party, Army Hammer. But wait a minute, that's not Jackie who he married. No. He married Gal Gadot. Oh no, Lynette Ridgeway, Jackie's friend. Uh oh, stole this man away. Uh, we introduce some of the other characters. Book literally leans into Foro and just whispers to him who some of the other characters are and why they might have an issue with Lynette. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, so, very Agatha Christie, just the character <laughs> being like, "Let me explain the motives of everyone here." <laughs> there's, there's, uh, Rid- uh, there's Lynette's cousin in quotes because they were raised together as if they were family but really it's because his family worked for hers andrew who uh kind of now runs the family business uh there's salome also has and a, he also has a mustache yeah. Mm. Yes, also has a mustache, uh, but it's a much more uh, minimal mustache. Uh, mm-hmm. Not as minimal as Army Hammers. If you had kind of like a Wonder Bread growth chart of mustaches, mm. you would start with Army Hammers, which is kind of a pencil mustache. Then it would go to Andrew's, which is the kind of mustache my dad has. And then it would go to Kenneth Branagh's mustache, which is the kind of mustache that an animal, an undersea animal. <laughs> Some sort of yeah. warthog. Yeah, carry exactly. around, uh, <laughs> carry around in case he needed to let sell it. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, as a disguise if he needs to buy some beer. <laughs> I see, I see. Yeah, because there's a there's a picture of that warthog at the front that says "Do not sell" to this uh-huh. warthog, and so he puts on a mustache, and the guy checks it. Hmm, you're, you're a different warthog. That warthog doesn't have a mustache. Exactly. Anyway, uh, the Otterborns are there to uh, to entertain because it turns out Rosalie Otterborn, the niece, is an old schoolmate of Lynette's. Uh, there's Dr. Windlesham, who's Russell Brand, who mm-hmm. used to be engaged to Lynette, and she broke that engagement for Simon. Or and uh, there's and some other ones. Anyway, everyone's having a great time until Jackie shows up, Simon's ex-fiance, horrifying uh, Lynette, thro- and throwing them off to such a point that they all leave. That they just cannot. They can't have fun anymore. They've got to go. Uh, the next day, they're all at some kind of uh, you know Egyptian bazaar. Uh, Hercule Poirot saves Lynette from a CGI snake. That almost bites oh, her. Oh, yeah, it was really scary. <laughs> that's, that's one of the many moments where I'm like, I, I don't know that this movie understands why people like cozy mysteries. Like, they no. feel they need to, like, beef it up with, like, a snake attacking well, her. Well, I think partly because this movie, spoiler alert, as we'll get to it, the murder doesn't happen until an hour into the film. Yeah, halfway it's through the film before the murder, which is And you uh, would think which you, you would weird. spend that time, like, getting to know these characters and building a puzzle box. No, no, no. <laughs> no, most of that time <laughs> is spent really. watching them dance to music over and over again. Or there's a lot of wealth porn. Like, yeah. most of the movie is wealth porn. It's the uh-huh. idea of, like... 30s rich 
you know, you're you get on a boat and you have you have everything you want in the world on the boat. Uh, it's like Fifty Shades of Grey that way, where the movie is not really about transgressive dominant sex the movie is about look at all the stuff rich people have isn't it amazing i have a private plane i have my own boat i have Mm. a castle that kind of stuff uh and they so simon and lynette they ask poirot to help them with jackie who has been following them the whole trip and lynette is and poirot's like well i solve crimes she hasn't committed one i don't know what you want me to do (laughs) i'm not a bodyguard you know (laughs) (laughs) I guess we got Elliot's <laughs> Halloween costume picked up. Yeah, yeah I think I'll be, I'll, I'll be, I'm going to be Poirot, the poor man's version of Poirot. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Lynette is like, I'm sure Jackie's going to commit a crime. Stick around. And yeah. uh, Poirot talks to Jackie to kind of try to convince her to go away. And she's like, Simon still loves me. I know it. And I still love him. And look, I have a gun. <laughs> and like, that's, it's, then Poirot calls for wild this hook, choice. sinker. Yeah, hmm. uh, and Perot he tells the the Doyles, Simon and Lenny, he goes, just go home. You're rich. Why do you have to get about the Nile? Just <laughs> yeah. go to your house and enjoy being rich at home. <laughs> and some, Simon's like, yeah, let's do it. And, and he sings like, a song no. about du poisson. <laughs> yeah, du poisson, du poisson. Hee hee hee. It's amazing to me. Every time, so there was a period when my kids were really into Beauty and the Beast, and they always wanted, or yeah. always into Little Mermaid, and they always want to hear the music. And I was always baffled me that this character got a song. This yeah. fish chef who only shows up to to terrorize Sebastian the Crab for a short amount of time that he gets a song which is nuts yeah there's the, and who else gets songs Sebastian gets two songs uh, Under the Sea and Kiss the Girl which of course he's an amazing singer those are great songs and Ariel gets I think just one song right part of your world does she yeah, get any other songs in the movie it. she's the star what uh, about Ursula Prince, yeah Ursula she's gets the a song she, she gets a great song uh, I mean, Fortune Souls. but that the, so but that the <laughs> On this, so Sebastian wins the number of songs. On the second, it's a three-way tie between Ariel, <laughs> Ursula, and this chef who does not even have a name. <laughs> I like to think that Mencken and Ashman had this song. They're like, they're like, oh, we wrote this song for a French chef singing about fish. We have it in the trunk. <laughs> we just gotta yeah. work it you into our what? new next project. <laughs> is, it, is, it, can, is there any way we can use some of that material from that singing restaurant we wrote material for that closed the first yeah. night? <laughs> They said it'll be like Jekyll and Hyde's, but singing instead of scaring. Yeah, uh, that's got to exist somewhere, right? There's got. I mean, there are. Oh, I mean, there's Johnny Rockets, I guess. For sure. but yeah, uh, and so because that's exactly what you want while you're eating is someone singing in your <laughs> face about the food. You. I don't uh, even someone... want people like that close to me singing when I go see a musical. I don't like it when they go <laughs> in the audience. I don't oh, want it. I hate that at a restaurant. I... Not a fan. I want to sit in the darkness and be an observer that doesn't exist in the reality mm-hmm. of the play. So, anyway, you don't ever think like, maybe it's time for me to be on stage. I'm on the I spotlight. Will, me. I will say the, the one time I liked that was when I went to see David Cromer's production of Our Town at the Barrow Street Theater, where uh, there were a couple of seats were on stage and they gave you one line on a card that you were supposed mm. to say when they when they told you to do it. And I was like, oh, okay, I like this. That was a surprise. Mm. I didn't think it was going to happen. Yeah. But it was, I didn't have to. I didn't have to react in the moment to a performer trying to embarrass me in front of the audience. Yeah. Like I didn't have to dance and pretend I was having a good time or that I pretend I was hypnotized or something. So anyway, that David was David Cronenberg's production of Our Town. David Cronenberg's production of Our Town. There's no props, so you have to imagine all, all the human imagine. viscera. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> something that looks like a bone that you stick into your butt. 
don't you know, know. It's, a, it's a, down at Grover's Corners. We've got the newspaper and we've got the school. And of course, we've got, <laughs> we've, we've got, got the cars the... people crash into each other so they can have sex with each other. <laughs> we've got that sort of umbilical sack that uh, people just <laughs> use as a swing. Well, it's called an arcade, but oh, it doesn't look like any video games I've ever seen. <laughs> now, now it's like, I want to go back and experience one day of my life, the day I put a videotape in my belly. <laughs> so, uh, <it's> this. <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, they say, we're not going to leave our party. Instead, we're going to have the party on a boat. They all and, Li- and Lynette, for some reason, dresses up as Cleopatra and just has a laugh, <laughs> pretending yeah. to be Cleopatra. Just for like a second. She does like a full wig every- and everything. And in like the next shot, scaffold. she's like, fine. She like, she's like, complete outfit done. Yeah. yeah, and she's also playing Cleopatra if Cleopatra was 15 feet tall, which is <laughs> yeah. another funny choice. <laughs> that she has to get up a scaffolding with its long, long gown. Yeah. Uh, anyway, they all go to big steamer ship. This is when the wealth porn really kicks in because it feels like for like 20 minutes, it's just watching the guests enjoy themselves as uh, Lynette's French assistant leaves to go get the luggage, and the and we hear kind of, you know, 30s bluesy type music playing and it just goes on for a long time of watching them play shuffleboard and dance and eat fancy food anyway Poirot uh, we see him looking at a picture of his ex of his, of his fiance Catherine we know that they're not married because uh, he's sad all the time and uh, it turns and uh, he's been brought on the trip ostensibly because Lynette doesn't feel safe on the boat she doesn't trust her other guests so she needs someone to protect her why not a kind of effete Belgian man with a big mustache who has, up to this point, I guess he saved her from a snake, so he's the he's only one she famous. can trust. Everybody I feel knows. like his skill set is based more on after the effect, though, right? Yes, he's much more about solving the crimes that ha- he's not the mi- he's not the future police from Minority Report that can go in and stop the crime before it's committed. Mm-hmm. He's very much a yeah, more of a traditional detective who needs something of, to happen. A lot of Minority Report content in this episode. I like it. You know what? It's it's just the time. It's having revival. It's we're living in the age of Minority Report and talking uh, you about know? Max von Sydow, Colin Farrell, Tommy mm-hmm. C. You know the whole gang. <laughs> Peter Stromare. The whole gang. <laughs> the whole gang. Getting your eyes swapped out, even though it doesn't really matter because you have to bring your old eyes with you. It's a pretty Cronenberg thing. Yeah, they're like, hey. We're putting these new eyes in you. Don't take your blindfold off for 24 hours. And he does it anyway. There are no bad effects whatsoever. It's totally unnecessary. What a picture. I love it. Oh, anyway, Steven Spielberg, he makes them. Anyway. I uh, mean, it's, it's so, like the sort of thing where they're like, don't, if you're taking these pills, don't take it with alcohol. And you're like, what's going to happen? Am I going to turn into a fucking gremlin? And they're like, I don't know. <laughs> and you look on the bottle, it says, side effects, gremlinism. And you're like, Ooh. Oh, no. Well, that's when oh, you no. get you get you get Hulk Hogan, you do, you do fantastic voyage, fantastic <laughs> yep. journey. Yep. You so like, he can go into your body, yep. put him into your body. He beats up all those little gremlinites. Yeah, yeah, yeah fantastic yeah. You, voyage. You're right. You're trying to explain to him. You're like, it's kind of like an it's kind of like outer space, but it's inside a body. He's like, so it's like inner space, brother. And you're like, yeah, I guess. It's <laughs> a little bit, but not as like goofy. Uh, the the movie I always when I was I was the kid that uh, when the song Fantastic Voyage the Coolio song came out I was like what does this have to do with getting shrunk down and being injected (laughs) into somebody's body there's nothing about this about being shrunk so uh uh, meanwhile, Andrew brings Lynette a contract to sign, and she starts to read the contract, and Simon's like, oh, just sign it so we can go bang. And uh, and Rosalie is like, uh-uh, the, the, the Lynette I knew always read every contract that was put in front of her, and I hope that was not a racist impression, I apologize. And, uh, She's just and, generally Southern, which is what she was. Which is what she is. But watch and, yourself, and, counselor. 
<laughs> I'll be on my best behavior. I'm sorry. And uh, and Andrew takes the contracts away and is like, oh, I'll give them to you another time when you're paying less attention to them. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. is so, well, everything about it is so shady. And, yeah. uh, I'll bring it another time when I'm less suspicious. <laughs> and Book reveals to Poirot that he's in love with Rosalie Otterborn, but her mother doesn't approve. And this is one of those things... The reason her mother doesn't approve is it's basically that she's like a singer or she's, an enter- or, she, or she's in an entertainment family. And Rosalie and Salome are both black. They're played by black mm-hmm. actresses. And it's a very weird movie that brings up, I don't want you to marry this woman. And she's played by an actress who's black and the character's black. But the fact that she's black doesn't ever seem to be part of Annette Benning's uh, problem with it. And it's almost like the movie wants to be diverse, but it doesn't want to actually confront what that would mean at the time yeah, in the 1930s. No, uh, you know. I, yes, and the, look, there are situations where colorblind cat casting just absolutely doesn't need to well, address colorblind it. cats don't have to address it, because colorblind it, cats can't see color, they're cats. But yeah. it it is an interesting problem that sometimes gets brought up the way that they're being treated in yeah. this time in it, reality. Like, it's it not... Compl- it's, no, look, it's, I would it's rather not, have I mean, I the get... colorblind casting than not, but it also brings up questions that the movie does not address. There, it's colorblind casting, but the movie is not a... If At that point, just don't don't make the characters like Southern blues musicians. Make them... I was reading, and apparently in the, in the book, it's like a, a British novelist, mm. and I think her niece. And it's like, at that point, just have it be a British novelist, but have it being played by black right. actresses. And that way... The, the, who the, it's or go the other way and actually grapple with the issue at least give lip service to the reality of what those of what people were like at the time in the way right. that they related to each other you know because that's the problem it feels like it's it's whitewashing history in a weird way like not whitewashing racially but like whitewashing in terms of like trying to pretend that people did not hold uh bigoted I mean like not that they don't still hold bigoted views yeah. but like it wasn't it was like an entirely different world like and it's strange it was a whole new world and not in the good aladdin way to not acknowledge to bring that up another disney song truth i the, the movie is writing checks it. that it's not smart enough to cash let's let's put yes. it that way yeah that's a fair that's a fair way to put it uh and it ties into uh top gun the hit film that's up available that's around now mm-hmm. right yeah maverick just crossed the one billion mark baby that's amazing anyway uh i, I haven't seen it yet uh i don't no, know if I'm going to, but uh, uh i've seen things. it you know, similar to this movie that uh-huh. uh, puts a lot of stock in mustaches, well, one mustache uh, worn by Miles Teller. And I have to say, if you're going to get all up in arms and excited about a mustache in a movie starring Tom Cruise, I don't know why people didn't go bonkers for Henry Cavill's mustache in the Mission Impossible oh, movie. What a great A veritable mustache. amazing mustache that I would live and die on. I've been on the record. Uh, on the you would die on that mustache. I yeah, skewer me <laughs> up on the bristles on of this of beautiful mustache. <laughs> what a dream! <laughs> what a fantasy to die on that beautiful mustache. That I I've been on the record on this very podcast as saying when they said they had to use computers to erase Henry Cavill's mustache for Justice League because he refused to shave it. I was like, that seems ridiculous. And then I saw that mustache at work in Mission Impossible. I said, no, correct choice. Yeah. You, you should. This if anything, I'm Superman glad that Justice League had, had to take a mustache the too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that would have been I thought great. he was supposed to be fucking super. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
If you uh, just anyway, switched back and forth, like from no mustache to mustache within a scene, I'd be like, yeah, he's fucking Superman. He's he Superman, do it. whatever. He's using superpowers. He's got super mustache. He's got super follicle growth. The uh, rays the- of Earth's yellow sun allow him to grow his mustache at will. <laughs> yeah. and, to, and to shave and it with his mind. Sha- yeah, he's to shave it by, what is it, like using like a reflective surface to like, yep, he, he bounce his it. eye lasers back on himself? <laughs> That's the only way he can so shave cool. is by reflecting his, so uh, his, cool. his heat vision. Yeah. Yeah. Easily, easily fixed in post. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so they all go visit Abu Simbel, which you know the ruins there, and uh, Madam, Madam and uh, uh, Box Mom is like, "Where's my red paint?" Which of course is going to be a clue later. Mm, and yep. she tells Box she's not going to give her blessing for him to be married. And Box says, "Well, I'm going to go public anyway." It's it's, and it's Book. His name's Book, not Bach. Book. Sorry, I I'm sorry, Book. Actually, they call he calls it calls him Book in the movie, and I didn't know how to But uh, anyway, Book. Boop, also, it? apparently, it's Gal Gadot, uh, which seems wrong, but it's not. <laughs> that's okay, how she says it. Mean, okay, so. I'll pronounce it how she says it. But that's like, um, oh, there's another one like that. Uh, well, I like the way that Stephen Colbert, the rest of his family, calls it Stephen Colbert. That's yeah. how they. That's how traditionally his name is pronounced. But anyway, yeah. uh, anyway, so Gal Gadot and the others, uh, they're there. Perot kind of flirts with Salome, the, the blues-singing aunt a little bit, and then talks about his retirement gardening plans. And uh, <laughs> Lynette and Simon are about to have sex on top of the uh, Abu Sindel monument, which is ridiculous. Also yes. because they're in plain view of everyone. Yo, like, I mean, don't get me wrong. Find, I'm a fucking A-plus horny boy, but... <laughs> let's find some place private for our sex let's on the front let's... face of this <laughs> monument. Let's, let's, you know what, what really turns me on is committing a cultural hate crime by de- by defiling this this UNESCO site with your jizz. That's what I really want to have happen. The, the, the constant fear that I will slip on this dust off this rock. Love it. And yeah, yeah. You guys, you guys don't understand true passion. Maybe you Lynette's need to watch like, a little I... movie called Crash. <laughs> I guess so. Lynette, Lynette is like, I don't know. And Simon is like, you know I can't get hard unless there's the risk of a mummy putting a curse on us. Yeah. That's the thing. <laughs> Uh, so I I'm thought that was it. what the death was going to be, and never once in the movie is it brought up the idea that they were cursed by defiling the site, which should have been no. what the movie was about. Right? Yeah, and so it should have turned out that the Perot was wrong, and it's like an ancient Egyptian ghost. But anyway, uh, a rock falls and narrowly misses hitting them, and that's when a sandstorm forces everyone inside. And Simon suspects foul play, and uh, it—I mean—he kind of asked for it. They're about to do yeah. it on, t- on top yeah. of a her- <laughs> cultural heritage monument. But anyway, uh, they I go mean, back they're to married, the dude. They can—they can pipe down wherever they want. Yeah, they go, I guess that's true. That's that's the law. That's the rules, that's the law. That's the rules baby. At, yeah, at a preschool, a McDonald's play space, uh, during a funeral, you know, anywhere. If you're married, you can wow, do it. Wow, you're pretty good but at coming yeah. up with those those scenarios, Elliot. Maybe you should hey, I'd get be, a job I'd be... <laughs> working for Brazzers. <laughs> I think that would be a huge Brazzers. step down in my career. <laughs> Idea man? Just like, <laughs> Ellie, we just Every, need you to generate 50 locations that sex could be had. <laughs> I lo- no, the, the, uh, the only reason I would do that is that when if they ever didn't like an idea of mine, I'd go, oh, how many Emmys has Brazzers won so far? <laughs> Zero? Because I have four. What's so <laughs> how many Writers Guild Awards does Brazzers have? By the way, this has got to be a Guild-approved production now that I'm working on it. <laughs> how many Peabody's does Brazzers have? Tell me, Bill Brazzers. <laughs> I assume that's the owner of the company. <laughs> and they're like, you're right, you're Short right, we'll Bilbo go with Brazzers. you. <laughs> and that's why there's suddenly so many more Brazzers videos that are based on, like, Italo Calvino books or, or like, uh, set, yeah. in the, set in the Elric world. I mean, I think... I think Johnny Sins could pull it off. I mean, he's been like a doctor, a fireman, a horny policeman. 
it's like well well uh well my uh my my I, I'm here with I'm here with my stepmom in the Star Wars universe. What's gonna happen next? Anyway, okay. there's only one there's only one room for the both of us on the Death Star. That's I don't know true, what's gonna yeah. happen. Anyway, so um uh they go back to the boat and Jackie is already there. Lynette's like, throw her off. And Simon is like, She bought a ticket. We can't. But I thought they had <laughs> rented out the boat. Like I don't Yeah, I not- asked I asked Audrey this too. I'm like, I thought that she, you know, she she made a big deal about buying the boat out. It's the same scene where she, you know, like the trailer had enough champagne to fill the Nile. But uh, apparently she had bought the boat out to a certain stop and then like <laughs> oh, I see. she joined. So, uh, yeah, the stalker That's- joins later. <laughs> That's that's Pennywise and ex-fiance foolish. That's yeah. that's the problem. So uh, Lynette and Simon, they tell Perot they're going to go home now. Perot has some champagne to celebrate their leaving, and he starts feeling sick. And Jackie tells Perot, I still love Simon, and he loved me once, and let love doesn't go away. Uh, and Perot says, I was in love once, and I lost the woman I loved to an attack during the war. She was coming to visit me, and her train was bombed, and... That loss turned me into the man I am now. So perhaps losing you is what it takes to turn. Well, losing Simon is what it takes to t- put your life on the right track. And by the way, this is one of the look again. I don't know, man. A better movie. Do what you want with the characters, but I found it very irritating in this movie that they felt like they needed to like add this haunted <laughs> backstory to Poirot and like make a big mm-hmm. deal about how he's. A lonely man who like has a wears a mask and all this stuff. Where it's just like, you know, the great, the miss, the like the detectives that we remember, like they're just that thing. They're like this broadly drawn character that is like super smart, cares about the truth, and then has like a couple of lovable eccentricities. And we don't care whether they change over time. Like we don't yeah. want them to. Like the scenario changes around them. You know. I wanted to see him bumble around and then talk about how there's like a hole in the donut, like a donut hole, like exactly. in the monologue like that. That's what I want. Something about donuts. Yeah, yeah. Just <laughs> I feel like I gotta say, not donut talk this way. It should be called donuts on the Nile. As somebody like I'm, I'm not uh, big into uh, mystery fiction. So, like, I kept thinking back to Knives Out, which is, you know, kind of built on the same thing. Exactly. And yeah. mm-hmm. I feel like that movie spent so much, like, it spent time with the characters and established very simple, like, motives without having somebody constantly telling you that shit. Like, mm. I don't know. Like, all obviously, none of the characters matter. Uh, they're all invented. They all exist in this CGI uh, glossy universe. <laughs> but, um, like, it just... Like nothing, like nothing matters. But then they they try and make you give a shit, and I'm like, that that doesn't work at all. Like, I well, don't know. Considering they spend so much screen time showing you how fun it is to be rich in 1937 and and be on the Nile, and so little screen time, yeah, making you understand or care about any of the characters, and the and it's like um, it kept reminding me of the the recent version of Taylor of uh, Soldier uh, Tinker Taylor Sol, uh, Soldier Spy. Yeah, I couldn't remember the order where uh, where it was like. Obviously, Colin Firth, spoiler alert, is the mole because he's the biggest name in the cast other than mm-hmm. Gary Oldman. And it was kind of similar here where it was like none of these people are kind of 
none of them are of the same stature as the other characters in terms of screen time, in terms of the force that they're that they're allowed to show on screen. Convincing motive. Yes, <laughs> in terms of well, that's the that the ultimate killer has the most obvious motive of all of them. <laughs> when it's like, yeah, yeah, probably your aunt who pretends to be a socialist killed you for money or something. <laughs> I don't know. Or like, yeah, that doesn't... Oh, you know what? Kenneth Branagh, the character who is clearly who is the milksop, who's the weakling. Clearly, he did it because he's he's jealous of of losing his fiance. Like all these characters that, that there's no reason to suspect them. Well, but yeah. also, yeah, like not giving them enough to to like sink their teeth into. Like this movie tries to distract you with CGI uh, Egypt and CGI snakes, but it's like yeah. the whole point of making a movie like this is like, all right, if you're gonna make an old fashioned star studded whodunit, then like do that, like get interesting stars and then focus on like give them really hammy meaty roles to play this movie feels like it's constantly cutting away from like one uninteresting thing to a, a less interesting thing yeah and, well, it's and like this they, movie has stars like there's a lot yeah. of names in this cast there's a lot of i mean you could there's a lot of people you could give real stuff to and like the and t- really skilled and, and great actors but and i'm not a huge again murder mysteries are not my favorite type of thing usually mm. and I'm, i don't love the original certainly not in real life <laughs> In real life, I don't like them at all. Uh, I don't, I'm not a fan of murder at all in real life. Uh, but uh, in Going the original murder, the original murder of the Orient Express, Ingrid Bergman's in it at playing this maid character. She has essentially this one long monologue that she gives that won her an Academy Award for supporting actress because it's an amazing scene. But it, she and other than that, she's not given that much time otherwise. But she's allowed that scene, and it gives you just enough reason to wonder if she did it. And so it's yeah. like, you just give each of these characters like a moment where they get to shine in and of themselves as opposed yeah. to just set dressing for Poirot to bumble around with. And it would have made it a stronger mystery because I wouldn't have guessed who it was within the before the, the mystery starts. Like yeah. It's the I'm, sweaty, yeah. evil-looking guy with the mustache. <laughs> the guy who's always sweaty and seems like a creep. I guess it, it couldn't be him. Oh, it is. Anyway. Willing to uh, raw dog it on a fucking monument. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who who am I exactly? Who am I going to suspect of murder? The guy, the guy who's the guy who's about to have sex in front of all of his wedding guests on top of an Egyptian ruin? Probably, yeah. Uh, so anyway, wow. Uh, they, they, we're about to get to the murder. What a prude. though. <laughs> Look, yeah. Well, uh, sorry. Uh, sure. Lynette goes. Lynette goes to bed after telling Jackie she wishes they were still friends. You're the, she says you're the only one who never cared about my money. And Simon and Jackie have an argument, and he's really mean to her, and she shoots him in the knee. And she's about to shoot herself, and Rosalie stops her, and uh, Book goes and gets the doctor and the nurse, and they take her to another room and give her a sleeping draught. And uh, the next morning, Louise, the maid, uh, Lynette's assistant finds Lynette dead in bed, shot very daintily. There's just kind of like a little hole with a little bit of blood spattered around it. And the maid's played by Rose Leslie, who was, what, Ygritte on Game of Thrones, and she's uh, also a time traveler's wife right now on HBO. right? Is it? Yeah, she's on, yeah, she's in Time Traveler's Wife. Married to Jon Snow. The character? No, the (laughs) the actress married, yeah, the, the actress married Kit Harington. Okay. Oh, I didn't realize it. So it was a real dream house situation. <laughs> yeah. That's good to... Okay, I'm... I, like, knew she had to be someone, but I didn't know... Like, the funny thing... Like, whenever I watch a movie with Audrey, she's always like, who's that? And she doesn't mean it in the, like, old person way of, like, they're asking who a character is, who the movie will explain in a second who that character yeah, yeah, yeah. is, and, like, if they just wait. She just... She means, like, who's the actor? And, like, you know, it's a reasonable question to ask Dan McCoy, human... IMDb, but oftentimes yeah, because nine I, times I'm out of like, ten, I don't know. Nine times out of ten, when I'm like, "Who's that?" Charlene leans over and she's like, 
That's Chappie Stewart. Oh, that is Chappie. <laughs> He's the name of the movie. I'm oh, like, that's oh, Chappie. okay, okay, okay. And we should especially know because Rose Leslie, this is her second Flophouse appearance. She was also in The Last Witch Hunter with one Vincent Diesel. So, <laughs> Oh, baby. Which we covered years ago. Yeah. So oh, anyway, uh, Le- Lynette's dead. We're halfway through the movie and we finally have our death on the Nile, the first of a couple. Yeah. Jackie is the obvious suspect, but she was asleep in a morphium haze all night. And also the gun went missing after the killing. Simon yeah. is distraught. Very fakely. And he pleads with Perot to find the killer. And also her necklace is missing. This jeweled necklace I forgot really to mention, but she has a fancy necklace. Uh, Perot investigates, uh, and the maid is like, I was engaged once, and Lynette paid off my fiancé to leave. Cause she didn't, and, uh, and she said she was saving me for a man who only cared about money or whatever. Uh, and everyone's cabins are searched for the necklace. Poro questions Dr. Windersham right next to Lynette's body in the meat locker of the ship. We <laughs> spent a lot of time in that meat locker, uh, which is kind of a hurt locker when Dr. Yeah. Windersham is there because he's, he's hurting emotionally. And uh, each of and these questionings, as we mentioned before, are more in the line of like, he just like seems to pick someone at random and accuse them. And go, and, why'd you kill Lynette? <laughs> and they're I like, didn't I didn't. It. And he's like, okay. And then he moves but they on almost the always person. They almost always give a speech that explains, it kind of makes you think why they would have done it. And then yeah. They, yeah. there's a little twist at the end and where they're like, so but like, actually... Poirot is like, can I see the, he says to Andrew, can I see the contracts you wanted uh, here to sign? Which is not the right <laughs> accent either. No. And and uh, he says, and Andrew's like, no. And Poirot goes, because the contracts would have given you control of her money. And he's like, huh, how did you know? And Poirot's like, it's like, I, I knew it. And I was, and I'm not Poirot. Poirot. Yeah. Like it's, it was obvious, but he uh, says, maybe you were stealing from her and you killed her before she could see it. And Andrew goes, better. I carry, I if, he goes, if I killed her, I would have killed her with this gun and pulls out a different gun. And it's Which like, is that's not wild, really, dude. It's not a good gun. And it's not a good argument. Hey, I couldn't have killed her with that gun because I kill people with this gun. It's like, wait, it's, a gun not like me? Murder her? No, no, no. <laughs> or you're like, I could, that can't be my signature. I use this pen. Well, you could have used another pen. Like it's... Uh, Poirot, he deduces that the I got the impression made, that he pulled out the gun in a way to also kind of end the conversation and be like... Yeah. Mm, let's stop this line of questioning because I have a good How'd you like to grow a mustache over the other side of your face, buddy? Let's. Uh, it's let's, uh, it goes a, to both sides of the face. That is what a mustache does. <laughs> okay, well, I'll does. give you a scar that. Uh, you'll have to grow a beard. I don't know. I'm trying to make a threat. Just stop <laughs> talking to me. Uh, so uh, he goes through all the other ones. Anyway, he, he deduces. Uh, also, very obviously, that French and Saunders are lovers. They're not really a boss and and uh, nurse, but actually mm. lovers and have been for a long time. Uh, Pro. Uh, Poirot being the hero, of course, embodies all 21st century progressive values, so this doesn't bother him whatsoever. And Jennifer Saunders um, has an American accent, but in real life, she has an English accent. Yeah, thank yes, you, thank you for pointing that, that out. I appreciate that. Add it that. to the big board. And uh, anyway, he, they, uh, and eventually, the uh, and we find out that Salome Otterborn carries a gun of the same caliber that killed Lynette. Anne Bancroft finds the missing necklace in her things, and Poirot uh, reveals... Annette, Annette Benning, right? That's what I said. Yeah, what did I say? You said Anne Bancroft. Yeah. Oh, I said Annette. I'm sorry. I meant Annette Benning. Anne Bancroft he, he is He gets his person. A-Bs mixed up. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Annette Benning, Anne Bancroft, a bear. I get them all mixed <laughs> yeah. up. <laughs> and so and Alec Baldwin. uh yeah, I can't tell the difference between Anne Bancroft and Alec Baldwin. It's impossible. Yeah. Alien versus Bedditor. Arby's roast with a little R beef with a big B. Yeah. <laughs> aliens versus Bedditor, you yeah. said. Yeah. yeah, aliens versus Bet Midler. Whoever wins, we lose. <laughs> Um, so Poirot, this is time for him to reveal to Book and Rosalie that he was secretly hired by Annette Benning 
to investigate mm-hmm. Rosalie to see if she's fit for book, which is something that nothing before this moment has given us any reason to yeah. believe, but that's fine. And he's very flattering. He says nothing but nice things about the Otterborns, uh, but Anne Bancroft is like, I still disapprove. And yeah, Rosalie that like, thing. Yeah. I'm <laughs> oh, sorry, why? I, I literally wrote it wrong in my, in my notes. Annette Benning says... Sorry. Uh, well, there's some other ABs we can go here to. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, ACBC? I don't know. What's, what's that? ACBC? That's, the, that's so. the caveman metal band. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then that song, you shook me all night long before Christ. <laughs> yeah, and so, I mean... L- uh, Rosalie, because I'm Le- back in furs. <laughs> mm-hmm. Caveman is uh, Letitia Wright's character's Rosalie. Is that the character name? Yes, yeah. Letitia yep. Wright's character's Rosalie. Yeah, yeah. like she's. Look, I know that. I know that if you find out that someone has been spying on you, you might be mad. But I found it very strange the degree to which they had her character like chew out. Poirot in a like very personal way when like he was he was incredibly like kind when talking to her and he was not the person who like uh, Annette Bening is the one who like tried to set her up anyway. I yeah. think you mean Anne Bancroft, but it, but I think the uh, the. Is it, I, I, that's the one part that where the where the diversity casting worked for me, where she's like, I don't need your approval. Like yeah. that, uh, she is not just going to be like, oh well, you know what? Thank you for saying that thing. She's like, I've gotten to where I am. Through my own work, I know who I am, and I've had to face my share of – this is not what she says, but it's implicit what she's saying. My share of obstacles, I don't need you to tell me I'm okay. I know I'm good. You're like, no, that, there's that, certainly – I like that part of it. You know, There's certainly that subtext that that adds uh, a lot of flavor to the It's like the, the only scene. part of the movie that has subtext, so but, I was like greedily <laughs> slurping it up. You know? But yeah, I don't know. The degree to which like – there was then like a personal like I think you are a weird fussy stuffy yeah she does get a man little, she gets like, a little hey. personal in a, in and then Benning was the one who was like not approving he he loves you anyway hey look yeah he he is a weirdo but still anyway also he's not that weird I think they are they're all t- and they're all and, talking about and, the other version of Poirot they've all seen yes <laughs> they've all seen the other movies and they're like they're they're talking about Poirot as if he's um. Like what's his name from the Big Bang Theory? You know, as if he is, yeah. if he's way on the spectrum and and has trouble relating socially with other human beings, which is not the case. And it feels like the Poirot the movie wants to give us is one that is like a, an eccentric man that doesn't interact well with people, but he but he does. He's he's super charming all the time. So it's a very it's strange for her to talk about him like he's weird. Anyway, yeah. Uh, anyway, all this argument is interrupted by when they find bump bump bump. The body of Louise, uh, Lynette's maid or assistant or whatever, personal assistant. And Andrew accuses the doctor of doing it, and they fight while Poirot goes into a sort of detective fugue mm. where yeah. everything gets hazy and he starts seeing clues, like he enters his memory palace somehow. Yeah. And she'd and been, she'd been, her throat had been slashed and she'd been thrown overboard and had gotten caught in the wheels of the steamship, and that's how they found the body. Mm. Almost as bad Dirty. as if she'd been thrown overboard and lost her memory, and Kurt Russell finds her, and uh-huh. you know and now then she's got to start a whole new life. Takes advantage of her, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so uh, uh, Poirot and uh, Simon they interrogate Book, and for some, Poirot now spins a tale accusing Book of what was going on, and uh, and he says that's crazy, but I will admit I did find Lynette's dead body because I stole the necklace and I witnessed Louise's murder, but I don't want it to all come out, uh, and. 
he admits that uh, before he, and he goes, but I'll, if I admit it, what's going to happen? And Poirot goes, you'll go to jail for theft. And he's like, oh, well, the killer was, and <laughs> he gets shot from someone far away. And Poirot chases the killer and somehow loses them, even though he seems to be two inches behind this killer. It's, every, basically, every it's basically a scream movie at this point. <laughs> it's also like, let's, let, let's drag out this interrogation for the longest possible amount of time before he actually says who the killer is. And, like, and Poirot's like, let me say the thing that will make you not want to tell me who did it. <laughs> like, yeah. even if you're gonna like later on be like, I don't know, maybe you got to turn yourself in to like if you're gonna give evidence or whatever. Like, that's not what you're dwelling on right well, at that moment. But if you had built him up as a as someone who is constitutionally incapable of not following rules of some yeah. kind, like that the law is ironclad for him, and like if you spent less time trying to explain that he has a, he's a wounded soul who doesn't trust love and uh, and doesn't feel comfortable loving, and instead built him up as a man who lives by kind of rules and logic and rationality, and so he can't help himself with saying, "Look, you're my friend. You can help me with this mystery, but if you stole something, you have to go to jail." But still, help me. Well, you know? especially it doesn't make sense considering that you know to jump way ahead later on. As they're leaving the boat, the guy who was like stealing money from Gal Gadot or what, like he, he's like, "Are you going to turn me?" And he's like, "Not as long as you return it, everything's fine." Like it's like, okay, yeah. you were going to make that exception for this well, random guy say, who was actually stealing money, but this... but you you could say that you could say it's because he's learned the lesson of that that his friend has died, and so it's like oh, possibly, I was but too... that is not a connection. It's a strange. To the movie, it's it's a strange uh, lesson yeah. to learn, but anyway, Poirot, he finally does it. He assembles everyone in one room. This is what we've been waiting for the whole time. Yeah. Uh, he has a gun in his hand, which he doesn't really do anything with, thankfully. Uh, and he gets Andrew to admit that Andrew was the one who tried to kill them with those rocks. Again, another crime Andrew probably should have to pay for is attempted murder with a huge boulder. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not to mention, he, not to mention w- the unconscionable, the unconscionable bro crime of coitus interruptus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but Stuart, what were you going to say? Yeah, yeah, he was, uh, he's on trial for being a boner killer. <laughs> yeah, he goes, he goes, you, Andrew, I find you guilty of cock-blocking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is a very serious crime in France, <laughs> which is not where I am from. I am from Belgium. <laughs> yep. And uh, he reveals that uh, eventually he gets around revealing the most obvious thing, that it was Simon who killed Lynette and Jackie killed the others. But wait, he got Simon shot in the leg. Uh, it was all an elaborate plot involving a fake bullet and then a real gunshot Staged afterwards. Staged fight to provide Jackie and him with, uh, with alibis, alibis. With airtight alibis. And they were been working together since the start. It was their plan for Simon to seduce Gal Gadot so that they could then kill her and steal her money. Uh, by far the most obvious solution the movie <laughs> Could have provided. It is yeah. the most obvious thing. And what now that they're caught, they have one final hug, and Jackie shoots one bullet through both of them. So wait, uh, there was there's a moment of okay. So the final moment where she's like, "But you have no proof," and he walks over <laughs> and he picks up. He says, "The proof is the handkerchief." Yeah, which Army Hammer had used to muffle the sound of the gunshot when he shot himself in the leg. Yeah. Had been tossed overboard and was found dredged out of the Nile. Tossed overboard, the handkerchief lost its memory. Kurt Russell found mm-hmm. it, took advantage uh-huh. of it. Yeah, all that. Yeah. And so, and Poirot says that blood, if left in the water, becomes brown, but this paint becomes pink. And he reveals the handkerchief, which is pink, which doesn't make sense to me because didn't he use the handkerchief to muffle the gunshot to his leg? Yeah, I think. Well, or maybe. Well, yeah, I don't then it remember. would have been it, blood. 
right? Unless he bleeds paint, which well, is possible. I think, did he use the... Because I, I think what it is partly is that he used the handkerchief to staunch the bleeding no, in the first place, the, maybe? And no, so he, did, he paint for, did use it as part of his fake thing with paint, but Stuart is correct also that there was like a thing about a handkerchief muffling the gun. I don't know because if Because he had the, the handkerchief different was different one, hidden. I don't know. He had he yeah. had stolen the handkerchief and then he hid it earlier and he pulled it out when he shot himself in the leg. Yeah. Look, I'm just gonna say it's like that wayside school school story where the kid counts wrong, but he always gets to the right answer. They're like, What's okay. three plus five? Okay. And he's like, three plus five. One, two, eight, nine, seven, six, twelve, eight. And like, okay, we well got to the right answer, but you used faulty, faulty math. I think it's the same thing with uh with this. As yeah. long as Poro got to the exact I right mean, answer that everyone on the like, boat yeah. there, and I'm only saying, five people if had to die. Pressed him on it, they might not have had to kill themselves. <laughs> yeah. That's true. That's a fair point. Uh, that's the other thing. They just like wait there for a long time. Like no one tries to take the gun away from Jackie. They don't anything. try to escape or anything like, like that. I don't know. Like it's, it's and Poirot doesn't have like jurisdiction to arrest them. Like I, I don't. It's I. It's also one of those things where it's like they're killing this person. They're killing that one. Kill Poirot. Like kill the guy who you think might solve the mystery. Like and no one cares about him. He doesn't have a, you know, like, it's not like anyone on the boat is like, now I'm going to pick up the mantle of being the great detective. Hmm, who could it be? Who had a motive to kill Poirot? The murderer. Now I must solve who the murderer is, and then I will know who killed Poirot. So Was you're saying me? when Jackie used that tiny little twenty two to snipe Book in the throat, silencing him, she should have just shot Poirot instead. Since since the other person in the room was the person she was plotting with and knew who the killer was also? Yes, exactly. She should have shot Poirot and then maybe shot Book, too. I don't know. Or like not, because at that point, Book doesn't have to worry about going to jail. Yeah, That's true. And he's terrified that he might also get shot. This is just advice from me. Again, I don't approve of murder in real life. But if you are a character in a murder mystery and the detective is on your trail, kill the detective. Like that's I don't know why you're not you're not solving the problem by killing the witnesses that could tell the detective about it. Maybe kill them later. But kill the detective is your immediate threat. So just go after him. Oh, yeah. Boy. Although, again, he certainly is not. Seem to be working with uh, great speed since uh, three characters die before he uncovers oh, yeah. the killers, who then kill themselves. So uh, I guess case Very closed. Good body job, count there, Jason Voorhees. <laughs> but you know, you know that Faro. Then later he goes, he, he should have gone. Yes, technically, I figured it out before they killed themselves. So that goes in the fin pile. It's a win. Technically, yep. technical win. Uh, so uh, then later we deaths on the Nile. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they, they, everyone gets off the boat the next day, and they're all super gloomy. And uh, Poirot, uh, he can't bring himself to ask Salome out. It seems like awkward timing. But six months later, we see him at the club watching her rehearse, and he doesn't have a mustache anymore. Oh, maybe he is ready to interface with the world and reveal himself and no longer hide behind his questionable gifts as a deducer and his hair on his face. Truly... A life-changing adventure for Hercule Poirot. For the Flophouse, I'm Elliot Kaler. <laughs> okay. it's, it's a kind of postscript to a movie where you're like, what? <laughs> I guess I guess this movie is like required by law to have some sort of character arc. So yeah. It's two hours long. Nobody gives a shit. Cut that it's shit more out. Than two, yeah, it's nuts. Just cut it down. We All we care about is the mystery. Once it's over, we don't care anymore. As long, I'm just glad they didn't start it with, they didn't have, and I didn't check the credits to see if there's a post credit scene or anything, that they didn't then like 
bring in another character at the end to bring him into a new mystery and have him look at the camera and go, uh-oh, here we go again. You know, I'm glad they didn't do that. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, let's uh, do our final judgments. Whether <laughs> guess, this is... Poirot, guess what? Now there's none. You're saying, and then there were none? Yes, I gotta go investigate. I know that's not a Poirot <laughs> book, but what are you gonna do? It's the Agatha Christie-verse. Yeah, yeah, or that the, cat who, the... the cat who solved mysteries? <laughs> no, that's a different author. That, or that he's sitting at the table and an old woman comes up and she's like, it's nice to meet you. I've always wanted to meet you, Poirot. They call me Marple. Bum, bum, bum. Like, mm-hmm. don't do yep. that movies. Okay, so let's do final judgments. We talked a lot about Death on the Nile. Yeah, whether this is a good, bad movie, a bad, bad movie, a movie you kind of like. Um, here's the thing, like, wh- whatever. This, you know, whatever. <laughs> you really, Dan, you really, you really go, bre- breaking kayfabe on us here. This well, is, like, yeah. I, I, if you, here's the thing, like, the, here's the tough thing about this, because <laughs> if you like this kind of movie, this is going to be acceptable for you. Like, you get... Mm-hmm. You get like uh not I don't know, like not not a pure high. This has been cut with a lot of other stuff. It's not it's not gonna give you give you what you want, but it's you know, it's it's got some of the elements. But it's kind of baffling to me that anyone who likes this kind of thing would want this version of this when they're much better versions. Like I I didn't mind it. Like I kind of, you know, at an earlier time in my life when I was on like a uh, summer vacation and was just lying on the couch, if this came on, I wouldn't be mad, but it's not much of a movie. What do you guys have to say? Yeah, I think, th- I think that's, that's, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Like, it's almost like if you, if you're a fan of this thing, it's almost like you're a fan of hamburgers, right? And you're driving down yeah. I-95 and you're like, I could really <laughs> go for a hamburger right now. And you pull in, uh, and you go to a Roy Rogers, and you get a, uh, you get food that is technically a hamburger. Mm. So I guess you're not wrong, but it's not really <laughs> the best version of that thing. But I guess it's all you got right now, so you might as well enjoy your fucking Roy Rogers hamburger, you maniac! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow! Wow! Yeah, I'm gonna. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm grew up on Roy Rogers fried chicken, so I'll, I'll just ignore uh, Stewart's Roy Rogers slander. Although their hammer, they know their other products are not great, but uh, yeah, it's like this movie is not terrible. It's perfectly passable and decent, but the amount of talent involved and the resources involved, you want it, You wish that there was just like something more to it than just kind of like a pretty humdrum, easy to guess mystery that doesn't doesn't go anywhere and doesn't. There's no spark to it. There's no life or joy to it, you know. And you're constantly watching characters dancing to upbeat music or being rich, but there's no there's no fun to it. And as I said to my wife when I finished watching it, if I'm gonna watch a murder mystery, I want it to have some fun in it. Like l- life is bleak enough. I don't need to watch a movie where someone's murdered and someone figures out who the other person is if there's not something fun or at the very least like exciting or or special I, about it. I feel like know? if you threw a murder mystery party in your apartment and had your friends come over. You would get a at least as good a performance as out of your friends. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah, they should have called this dinner. I have theater cool on friends, the is what I'm saying. You do have cool friends too. Well, your friends are also all the you're, you're friends with the Worcester group. So <laughs> Yeah. Hal Loveland here with breaking news on a revolutionary form of entertainment. Professional wrestling. For more, we go to our correspondent, Danielle Radford. Professional wrestling is the craze that's sweeping the nation, featuring fisticuffs, 
and colorful costumes. But who can help us make sense of this world of body slams? Lindsay Kelk has the answer. Sources tell us of an amazing podcast called Tights and Fights, filled with discussions of the absurdity of professional wrestling, plus all the sincerity and hilarity that you could shake a stick at. Listen to the Tights and Fights podcast every week. Find it on Maximum Fun or wherever you get your podcasts. And your old-timey radio. Hey there, I'm Ellen Weatherford. And I'm Christian Weatherford. And we've got big feelings about animals that we just gotta share. On Just the Zoo of Us, your new favorite animal review podcast, we're here to critically evaluate how each animal excels and how it doesn't, rating them out of 10 on their effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. Guest experts give you their takes informed by actual, real-life experiences studying and working with very cool animals like sharks, cheetahs, and sea turtles. It's a field trip to the zoo for your ears. So if you or your kids have ever wondered if a pigeon can count, why sloths move so slow, or how a spider sees the world, find out with us every Wednesday on Just the Zoo of Us in its natural habitat on MaximumFun.org. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, uh, so this podcast, the one you're listening to now, is uh, sponsored in large part by listeners like you, uh, overwhelmingly. But we also have some uh, sponsors who uh, have businesses or services this time. Squarespace is happy to help sponsor the Flophouse. It's the all-in-one platform for building your brand and growing your business online. You can stand out with a beautiful website, engage with your audience, and sell anything, products, content, and even your time uh, with Squarespace. You can create Pro-level videos effortlessly. The Squarespace Video Suite, uh, oh, sorry, Video Studio app helps you make and share engaging videos to tell your story, grow your audience, and drive sales. You can sell your products in an online store. Whether you sell physical or digital products, Squarespace has tools you need to start selling online. And all Squarespace websites are optimized for mobile. Content automatically adjusts so your screen, your site looks great on any device head to squarespace.com slash flop for a free trial and when you're ready to launch use offer code flop that's f-l-o-p to save 10 percent off your first purchase of a website or domain that's Sounds that. great i would i would tell our audience to do it yeah well i i did yeah i did, did do that. it and i approve of that yeah yeah unlike okay. dan i'd say go use that product Hey, Elliot, uh, do you want to quick uh, reiterate uh, about the live show, maybe? You got it. For anyone who didn't remember what I said earlier, that we're doing a live show. It's our first live show in about two years. That's right. We haven't performed in front of a live audience in two years, and you get to be there for it if you're in the Brooklyn area. That's August 7th, Sunday, August 7th, at the Bell House in Brooklyn. You know at our old stomping grounds. It's a great venue. We love being there. We've had so many fun shows there, and we're so looking forward to this show. We're going to be talking about Morbius. We're morbing it up over at the Morb House at the Bell House, and it's going to be super fun. So for tickets, just go to thebellhouseny.com and look up August 7th on their calendar for the Flophouse. That's going to be Sunday, August 7th at 7.30 p.m. at the Bell House in Brooklyn, talking Morbius along with all other sorts of fun Flophouse stuff. And remember, 
This is your chance to be in the Flophouse because we do a live Q&A during the show where people get up and ask questions. You got a question, come on down to Brooklyn and ask us, and we'll do our best to answer it. But we'll probably do a lot of like, hmm, huh, hmm, beforehand. So that's the Flophouse talking Morbius at yeah. the Bell House, August 7th. Remember, you can't spell us without Morbius. Wait, uh, kind of you can't the other spell way Morbius without yeah. us. Hey, there's no I in Morbius, Dan. Oh, wait a second. <laughs> Hold on. If you want more BS, come to Morbius. <laughs> now you got it. Okay, okay good. That was Perfect. good workshopping. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, uh, we also get letters. Why don't we talk about some of those? Hey, Let's fuck it. it. Why not? Let's go crazy. <laughs> Let's go nuts. Uh this one I can't I I I can't find who. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. <laughs> okay, I'm I guess really Elliot Nile Vamp. So, uh, what's new with your no, kids? No, no, dude? no, no. I lo- <laughs> I looked for it. I cannot find it. That's why I'm. Um, but this anyway. is what's called an unforced error, where a letter that nobody knew about ahead of time can't be found. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh. No. No. I have the letter. I'm saying I can't find the name of the person who sent it. Oh. I, oh. It's not. It's not on the letter. I. Uh, I don't need to talk about my whole workflow to you. I just don't have it. Okay, uh, anyway, fair. here we go. On a recent road trip to the mountains, my oldest kiddo mentioned how much she's grown to love the Flophouse theme. It's not that she listens to you guys, but rather it's because the Flophouse is my default podcast of choice when we're on a long trip. And now that Diddy has become the theme song to our family travels. As the Great American Road Trip is a fairly universal experience for many kids, what was the song or songs that you most associated with those hot summer days spent in the backs of overpacked cars from your childhoods? Apologies for not having a movie question. That's fine. All the best. That's all right. Uh, you know, well, he mentioned those summer days, Dan. Let's also not forget those summer nights. Oh, shit. Tell me more. Tell me more about the songs you listen to in the car. Tell me more. Tell me more about the songs you listen to driving far. Uh-huh. 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 <laughs> yeah. Dan? My parents had a, a, a best of Billy Joel that they played a lot um, while I was in the back listening to a weird conglomeration of early cassette tapes of mine. I had, uh, I had uh, perhaps the oddest one uh, was that I had the Nutcracker Suite and would love to listen to that. I mean, that's not what? a lot of, it's beautiful music, Dan. No, but I mean, you don't think of kids being like, let me put in my Nutcracker sweet tape. That reminds, Dan, but, but that reminds me of, uh, I mean, I do. I, I love the Nutcracker when I was a kid and we listened to it all the time. Mm. But the, the uh, that reminded me of uh, my my <laughs> first year, my, my yeah. first year at, uh, at the dramatic writing program at NYU, uh, one of my fellow students, who I will not name, but he's a lovely person, uh, the teacher was like, tell me some of your, your guilty pleasures. What kind of movies do you watch as guilty pleasures? And he was like, well, I love Five Easy Pieces. And it was like, well, I don't think Fuck you understood off. the question, sir. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, he's a good but guy. I also That's had a couple, of, yeah. a couple other ones I had early on, early cassettes of mine, were um, the B-52s, not one of their early, uh, better-known ones. I had Good Stuff, uh, sort of their last gasp of having a, an MTV hit. And I had the Wayne's World soundtrack. Was it? Whoa! Uh, does that make me cooler, Stuart? A lot of metal songs in the Wayne's no, World. No, you're soundtrack. super cool. Yeah, you're the coolest okay. dude in the world. Hey guys, hey everyone who's listening, Dan's pretty fucking cool. Okay, okay why don't you thanks. calm down? Yeah. Chill um, out. Let's see. Uh, with my parents, uh, it would kind of depend on if it was my mom driving or my dad. We did do. I did do a lot of road trips as a kid because I played. 
on a youth soccer team and our club team would play in soccer tournaments all around the Indiana State area. Uh, my mother would usually play uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show uh, tape, uh, which mm. I loved and would sing along to. And uh, that, and my dad's, my dad's big one would be like, I feel, I, I always think of like Bob Seger. That's like mm. dad music, right? Bob Seger, yeah. sure, totally sure, is. yeah, yeah. Old Very time dad. rock and roll and mm-hmm. all that kind of shit. Turn Against the page. The wind. Mm-hmm. Against the wind, hell yeah. Yeah. Uh, Elliot? Well, I. Uh, it's funny that you mentioned Billy Joel because certainly my family listened to Billy Joel a lot growing up in New Jersey. And we'd go on long trips, but the, for whatever reason, the album they played the most was Stormfront. So like hmm. Down East or Alexa and stuff, I, I, that's tied my mind with uh, to memories of being in the car for long trips. But whenever we started a trip, we had to start with our trip starting song. It was never called that. It's the song my dad would play, which was the final countdown by Europe. Uh, and really? So, yeah, when we'd start, we'd start on a drive, that's what he would play, and then immediately take the tape out, not interested in any other songs that Europe has to offer. And then the Billy Joel would get, would get pumped in. And the other one is uh, The Best of Queen. That was a big, that was a big tape. Yeah, uh, I can see that. Yeah. Um, hey, here's another letter from a listener. This one I do have. Uh, it's from Rick, last name withheld, who writes, Your night of the juggler minisode made me think of my wedding. My wife was born. Interesting. In- <laughs> Explain. Okay. <laughs> my wife was born and raised in the Bronx, and we were married in the church she'd gone to since she was a child. I, on the other hand, was born and raised deep upstate, and 70s and 80s portrayals of the Bronx, like Night of the Juggler, had my relatives believing they were braving an apocalyptic hellscape to attend. Now, this was in 2003, but to be fair to them, even now I can't immediately call to mind a fictional Bronx that is not a lawless wasteland or gangster incubator. They were surprised to learn the Bronx has many non-hellscape neighborhoods, and it is possible to spend quite a lot of time there and never see a burned-out building or a baseball fury. My question (laughs) is, have you ever been surprised to visit a place and find it didn't match the image that fiction had planted in your head. Keep it floppy. Rick, last name withheld. I'll quickly say, uh, just off the top, because mine is not interesting because it's basically the same one, as someone who grew up in the Midwest and who you know, grew up in the 80s and saw all of these 70s versions of New York, by the time I made it here, like, I, like, you know, out of college, came here. I had assumed it was going to be, uh, yeah, the the hellscape that it was painted to uh, me all my life. And instead, I'm like, oh, this is like a very nice collection of neighborhoods. <laughs> like nothing, <laughs> no, nothing, nothing in that is is accurate anymore. <laughs> um, I mean, many of the things were never accurate. There were not all that many baseball furies roaming the streets at any point. But uh, uh, what Even do you guys Even in the Warriors, have? there's a pretty small number of baseball yeah, furies. Yeah, just a few baseball furies overall. Yeah, like nine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the yeah, I never... I, I was disappointed to see that, that I didn't have a good view of the Canadian mountains uh, from, <laughs> from the, the Bronx. Bronx. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Like, I feel like... Man, I like New York's such a boring answer, but it's kind of true. Like I moved, I first moved to Brooklyn, and I assumed it was going to be this like tough place, and it was just kind of a quiet little neighborhood. Um, yeah, I don't know. 
Uh, for me, I, so there was so Dan and Stuart know about this, and I'm not sure I. I mean, I, I went to I, I went to Mexico, and it wasn't all sepia toned. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had other colors there, and it was, yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. well, similarly. So in 2013, I went. I was part of a Daily Show USO tour of Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and I've, Dan and Stewart, I'm sure, are aware of this, but but I don't know if I've ever mentioned it before on the podcast. I possibly have. Yeah. Like a, and it was very much. It was very eye opening to see not just that Afghanistan is a very different place than movies would have you believe. Like the movies would have you believe that it is a place that only exists for American soldiers to show up and constantly be blown up or disillusioned about life um, mm. and that the country itself doesn't have its own things or people that live their own lives and are not that, that, that the country was not designed just so that foreign countries could come and have wars there and then leave. Yeah. Uh, but also that life in a war zone was very different than movies lead you to believe it is. And uh, like that the movies, because they want to be exciting, I guess they lead you to believe that you, it is just constant danger and constant, constant action and constant, you know, either horror or thrills, but really it's a lot of um, people spend an awful lot of time sitting around waiting, and it's uh, there's more of a kind of soul-killing aspect of it in that way, In uh, even in the moments when there aren't action. But it was just a really amazing experience, and it made me wish that someday I'd like to go back in a, you know, in more of a peaceful traveler sort of way, because it's a beautiful country, and in the movies... I feel like any place America goes for war is presented as inherently sinister or, at the very least, uh, strange and and incomprehensible. Uh, whereas in Afghanistan, it was very easy to see kind of like the beauty of the place and and of the people there that I got to interact with, and it was really fantastic. So it's a place that hopefully I'll get to go someday, just on a regular trip. So let us move on to our last uh, section of the show, which is recommendations, movies that might be a better use of your time than uh the one we watched for the podcast debatable Uh, well yeah debatable i'm gonna uh, speaking of which i'm gonna offer a qualified recommendation for something that i saw that like basically it's It's called death on the nile (laughs) no it was in a weird in a way it's the opposite of death on the nile because death on the nile Nile. feels uh like such a straight down the middle pitch and this is uh one of the weirder movies I've seen, but um, my qualified recommendation is for a movie called Mad God, which is available on Shudder right now. Uh, it is a movie made by uh, special effects artist Phil Tippett, who did it. Uh, you know, it originated as like a short that he did long ago, and then he expanded it over the years through crowdfunding, and now it is a full feature that is available uh, for viewing, but it is not a feature with a clear narrative of any kind there. Are, there's like a story, I guess you could tease out if you wanted to, especially if you read about it, but it is really kind of just a descent into some sort of dystopian hellscape, uh, mostly done through stop motion. There are a few actual humans in it, but, uh, and I don't think there's any dialogue in it. Um, yeah, my my qualified part of this qualified recommendation is I will say, um, as much as I admire it for uh, sticking to its artistic guns, like it has no narrative drive to pull you through. So even though you're seeing the most amazing, strange things you could hope to see, it it can get boring. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, 
But um, so maybe, you know, I would recommend watching it in, I don't know, 30 minute chunks. However you, long you like to enjoy your non-narrative weird cinema. Uh, <laughs> but I still wanted to recommend it because it is a singular movie. It is a movie that is definitely one very talented man's vision uh, that is largely uncompromised by anything else. Um, so if you if that makes you curious, give it a watch. Know that there's some very gross, disturbing stuff within. Yeah, I've been meaning to check it out. A lot of people ask me about it, and I just haven't gotten around to it. But that is a solid, uh, qualified recommendation. I'm hmm. going to recommend a movie unqualified. Uh, what? I'm I'm going to recommend uh, a movie by uh, a favorite here at the Flophouse, Mr. Michael Mann. That's because he's a human, and that's what his last name <laughs> oh, is. Oh, I see. He was bitten uh, by a Michael, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to recommend his movie, <laughs> Miami Vice, uh, that is part of his like digital video era, also known as his Chris Cornell era, uh, where Michael Mann made a bunch of movies that are using digital video that both, like, to me, look both a little bit ugly, but also kind of beautiful in a way that I don't see a lot of other, like, I don't feel like any other, uh, like, auteur, I guess, or, like, marquee filmmakers embrace digital video like Michael Mann did with Mike, Miami Vice and, like, Collateral. And Public Enemies. Um, and Public Enemies. Uh, to a lesser degree, Public Enemies. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it's, it's very digital video. Yeah, but, I mean, uh, the general quality of the movie, to me, is, I'm, is I'm, less. I'm just, yeah, I'm just going into the digital video aspect. I don't <laughs> think it's particularly good. Elliot but, is yeah. exclusively splitting hairs. Um, the <laughs> uh, Miami Vice, I remember... And what do what do men have on them? Hairs. That's just like true. Michael Mann okay. is a yeah, man. Elliot so is, yeah, yeah, Elliot's... Full yep. circle. Yep. Yeah. It works. It all Good works, point. guys. Um, <laughs> you know, Miami Vice is a movie. Like, a, I feel like a lot of Michael Mann movies. When I first encounter them, it uh, it didn't quite click with me, and maybe it was where I was at in life. And uh, but seeing it again now, uh, it again like it looks beautiful. The performances are great. Uh, it manages to be sexy in a way that I find a lot of Michael Mann movies are not. Like I feel like the love story in the movie works a lot better than some of the other romances in his movies. I mean, the sexy speedboat situation is amazing. And of course, when Colin Farrell explains that he's a fiend for mojitos, oh man, what a movie! Um, and there's like. <laughs> There's this like there's beautiful moments of like th like lightning being caught like in the background that like they couldn't have planned that shit it just it's there and it looks great uh, yeah it's uh, it's a cool movie it's it's long but uh, yeah it's a great little movie check it out and I'm gonna recommend a movie uh, watching this movie uh, which is not Murder on the Orient Express but is related to Murder on the Orient Express it reminded me of a movie that involves a murder on a different train. Uh, the Trans-Siberian Ra Siberian Railway that I uh, that I wanted to recommend, uh, and that movie is called Horror Express. This is from 1972, and it stars Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, and the poster says Telly Savalas, but he doesn't really show up until the, like the last third of the movie, and he doesn't do very much. But uh, it starts out; uh, it's a movie set in the early 20th century, and uh, Christopher Lee has found a sort of frozen 
primitive humanoid in the uh, Himalayas, and he brings it with him, and it appears that it is uh, getting out of its case and murdering people on this train. But the real explanation is much stranger. Uh, and so mm-hmm. it's a it's a real fun movie. It's a little silly, but uh, it really, as opposed to Death on the Nile, it really goes in directions you don't necessarily expect it to when it first starts up. And it's just fun. It's great to see Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing uh, doing a movie together, always. This is not a Hammer film, but it feels like a Hammer film because those two guys, those two guys are in it. So that's Horror Express. Sounds good. Uh, three, three great recommendations. Three great recommendations. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that three must... unqualified recommendations. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, hey, that that means that it's the end of the show. But before we go, uh, just a little business. Uh, if you got a moment, go to iTunes, leave us a review to help spread the word of the show, or tweet about it. You know. This is a movie. This is a po- podcast that this summer, at the end of the summer, will be 15 years old. And uh, you know, podcasts tend to plateau. Sometimes hard to uh, build an audience. If you want to do something that costs you nothing but helps us uh, out, you know, let people know about the show uh, one way or another. Uh, you can follow us at the Flophouse Pod on Twitter and at the Flophouse Podcast on Instagram. Uh, we have a YouTube channel, The Flophouse Podcast. Uh, if you go to flophousepodcast.com, you can find links to the live show. You can find links to merch. You can, uh, you know, I don't know, read about us, see a photo. I don't know. What do you want to do? <laughs> we're, we're a member of the Maximum Fun Network. There's only so much there. There's only on. so much. It's a, you know, it's really a, just a, a way to have this podcast. Go to maximumfun.org to check out all the great podcasts on our network. Uh, even though he's not producing this episode, um, thank you to our producer, Alex Smith. Please come back soon at Howell Dottie on Twitter. Uh, but until next time, I have been Dan McCoy. I'm Stuart Wellington. And I'm Elliot Kalin saying, join us for more mystery, madness, and murder on another episode of The Flophouse. I can't promise that any of those three things are going to be in the next episode, but you never know. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 other, the, the other thing, I, I could be brutally honest, I could be like, the movie that dares you to give a shit. Anyway. Uh, and, how, and what about the vibes over there? <laughs> the vibes? Well, I get the feeling there might be a vibe shift soon. But okay. right now, the vibes are pretty good. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.